My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is the man who mistook his job for his life. How to thrive at work by leaving your emotional baggage behind. And I am joined by the author, Naomi Shragai. Naomi Shragai graduated from University of Southern California and completed her training as a systemic psychotherapist at the Tavistock Clinic, London. She has more than 30 years experience as a psychotherapist and family therapist in private practice, as well as working in the NHS and private hospitals. She now specializes in helping businesses and individuals resolve psychological obstacles that cause work-related problems. As a freelance journalist, she has written for The Times and The Guardian since 2008 has been a regular contributor to The Financial Times, where she writes predominantly about the psychological aspects of working life. In a previous career, she was a stand-up comic, working on the London comedy circuit, as well as making radio and television appearances. And she lives in Northwest London. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast, Naomi. How are you? Yes, I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. And I must say, if people read the book, they will find out that you actually have a street named after you. How cool is that? Did I get that right? A street named after you? A street named after me. Didn't your father name uh, a road after you? Oh, 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 yes, yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of my childhood. It was a moment you just passed me. Thank you very much. That's right. My father built a park in Victorville, California, which is somewhere in the desert. Uh, the high desert in California on the road to Las Vegas. And he was free to name all the streets after family members. So somewhere on the way to Vegas in the high desert, there's a little street called Naomi Street. How exciting is that? Isn't that so cool? I have just proved to my listeners that I read all my books. (laughs) Okay, so I'd like to start off with the book. And on the inside cover of the book is inscribed. You probably don't realize it, But every day at work, we unknowingly reenact conflicts, dynamics and relationships from our past, repeating patterns of behavior that help us navigate our family lives, but which stunt our professional ones. That is such a wonderful insight. And this book is so insightful. And um, if people have a micromanager who they can't understand or receive feedback that's a blow to your self-worth, or you're unsure of the drivers behind people's overreaction to a work situation, work situation, or wonder why people you're a people pleaser or a workaholic with poor work boundaries. 
this is the book for you. It covers so much. And Naomi, I, I have to say, I'm full of praise for this, as does Manfred uh, Ketz de Vries, who's a professor of leadership in NCED. And this is the reason I bought this book, actually, Naomi, is he said it was captivating. I couldn't put this book down. And I had the exact same response as Manfred. And I know a lot of my clients who read this book could see themselves in this book, but also um, could see other people at work. Uh, so thank you very much for that. So what's your intention behind this book? Why, why, why did you write it? Well, you know, uh, this book comes directly from my psychotherapy practice. You know, mm. I've been in practice, as I mentioned, as you mentioned, over 30 years. And I would say about 15 years ago, I started to pay attention that people were bringing more work-related problems to psychotherapy. Now, most people don't imagine to bring work to psychotherapy. They imagine psychotherapy is a place to bring relationship difficulties, perhaps grief, divorce, depression, typical themes that people bring to therapy, but more and more people bringing work-related issues to my consulting room. And of course, I took note about this and there was something else quite profound happening as well, which is I noticed that people were acting out more at work than they were in their personal or family lives. In other words, they were more emotionally invested at work than they were in their closest relationships. And this was really striking to me that work suddenly became predominantly a place where people were resolving historic or unconscious conflicts from their early lives rather than in their families. So, for example, people were were reporting that actually at home, it was relatively problem-free, no real issues at home, but all the conflicts, all the tensions, all the insecurities and vulnerabilities they were locating at work and this is what I find is a profound shift in interest. And this is what, I guess, propelled me to write this book. It's about getting that deeper understanding for yourself that would it be fair to say maybe it's not work that is the problem. Maybe it's your approach to work or your understanding of what's going, the dynamics that are going on at work. Would, would that be a fair assumption? It's a very fair assumption. Not only is it a fair assumption, it's a question people need to be asking themselves. Because at work, things happen very quickly. You know, there's not a lot of time to actually process dynamics or strong feelings. You know, things are happening relatively quickly. But nonetheless, what's important is that people are needing to ask themselves now, you know, these threats that I feel at work, are they coming from inside me or from outside? In other words... Are people at work actually undermining me? Are they actually intending to be against me? Does my boss really want me to fail? Or is this coming from inside me? That's precisely the sorts of questions people should be asking themselves. So that's what I encourage people to do. Of course, the more one is self-aware of oneself and one's history, one's psychology, the more one is able to answer these questions. Without the conscious awareness, it can feel as if all these threats are coming from the outside. And many people at the workplace, you know, have these feelings. They might feel they're being ignored or undermined or again people are against them those kinds of anxieties or they're fearful of making mistakes now for fear that they'll be judged badly now will they actually be judged badly or do they imagine they'd be judged badly so making this distinction where things are coming from inside oneself or outside oneself is absolutely crucial 
Because of course, if you know that your anxieties are located inside you, well, that's something you're able to control and manage. And the other reason that's so helpful is because if you start to believe that all these threats that you're feeling, threat of being exposed, for example, if you feel those threats are coming from outside of you, well, you might be right, but what if you're wrong? What if you're misreading situations? What if you think your boss is against you, but he's just trying to support you? So he's perhaps, you're perceiving him as micromanaging you or giving you excessive instruction, but maybe it's because he wants you to succeed. Maybe it's not because he thinks you're not up for the job. So the, the crucial reason for doing this self-examination is so you don't misread situations. That you get that you're reading people accurately, you're reading dynamics accurately. The more you can read situations correctly, the more equipped you are to make better decisions and improve your performance. I often do leadership development courses and do a huge amount of executive coaching, which I know you do as well. Yeah. And I think this is such a timely book because it allows you to remain objective, to use that phrase, to, to have that balcony view about workplace conflict and to see that in a very rational and objective point of view. And I think this is why it's so timely is the pandemic has, I suppose, surfaced a lot of irrational thoughts or behaviours. And because of that, that heat uh, there that's added to the, the, I suppose, a conflict situation, all these things are emerging and now we have to resolve the things that were unresolved in our past. Would that be your, your take on it or what would your take on it be? Well, I think it's always the case that, and it has always been the case that all of us, I mean, we're all of us just human. And of course, there's part of our unconscious, our inner lives, our early experience that we bring to the workplace. And of course, we act on these experiences. And that's always been the case. Um, you know, perhaps in the pandemic, what's different is because people are working on video so often, you know, they, they, they have kind of less information. What do I mean about that? You know, you don't have... A, you're not able to read people's body language. You don't really get the tone of their voice. You know, it, it leaves people much more open to their imaginations rather than who the other person actually is. In other words, there's more opportunity to misread situations. And if you're misreading situations, it might be that you're reacting more to what you imagine other people think of you than what they actually think of you. You know, we don't have those moments. You know, when you're in the office and you've had a bad meeting and you feel as if somehow your idea has been dropped or you've been ignored or your boss promised you it would be on next week's agenda and it's not on next week's agenda. And, you know, for some people that can feel devastating. But of course, if you have a close ally or a friend after the meeting, you might pull them aside and, you might say, gosh, I really felt ignored there. What, what do you think? And, and your colleagues could offer you some reassurance, a dose of reality. But without that, of course, people are left to their imaginations. If their imaginations are quite optimistic, yeah. <laughs> well, that's not such a bad thing. But if they're prone to negative thinking, it could be. What a wonderful uh, insight. And that brings us to that self-awareness and taking ownership for that self-awareness so how do we become more 
how should I say, emotionally mature in the workplace? Like, what are what's our own responsibilities for our own behaviors? Because it's kind of very easy to go, you blame your boss, you blame your colleagues, or what are, what's our own responsibility for our own emotions? Gosh, that's such a good question. You know why it's such a good question? Because people really ask themselves this question. <laughs> they're very quick to blame colleagues. They're very quick to blame their bosses, their clients, the people who work for them, people on their team. You know, we're very quick to find fault in everyone, of course. That's perfectly human. It's quite natural. Um, and of course, the question to ask, of course, is what's my responsibility? So self-awareness is crucial. So let me say a few things about that. One of the things to say is that people are responsible for managing their own emotional lives, their internal lives. They're responsible for managing their feelings. You know, at work, there really isn't that place at work or that time at work um, to uh, process feelings. And yet people have very strong feelings at work. The difficulty is if people have strong feelings, they often feel entitled to express them because they have them. They think if I'm feeling angry, surely my anger is justified. Surely somebody's responsible for my anger. But what if you're responsible for the anger? What if that anger comes from an unresolved conflict from your early life? You know, it might be, and this is something I see, it might be in your early life that your father, the authority figures in your life, perhaps harmed you. You know, your your father, your mother could have been a bully, could have been somebody who harmed you or neglected you or hurt you in some regard. And then it's more likely in the workplace that you'll take those negative feelings with you. And you might project those feelings onto authority figures at work, your boss, or even your underlings, people you depend on. Of course, you depend on your underlings as much as you depend on your boss. So, you know, some of that anger can get displaced in the workplace. So it's your responsibility to understand or have that kind of self-awareness, the kind of self-awareness that helps you separate your past from what's actually happening in the workplace. Really, what you want to do at work is you want to be tuned into the reality. What is really going on? Who people actually are rather than who you imagine they are, because you're past experience have somehow kind of informed wrongly who these people are. I hope that's clear. So your responsibility is to have enough personal awareness and your other responsibility is to manage your emotions. Now, let me say something else about that because it's really important because currently in the climate, there's idea that we really shouldn't upset people at work. Well, of course, we'd rather not upset people. And it's, of course, very positive and good that there's more rules around bullying, harassment, discrimination in the workplace. Of course, all of that's for the better because it makes work altogether a more fair and safe place to be. So, of course, we want to encourage that. However, doesn't mean that people will be free of upsetting or bad feelings. That's just normal. So I think people need to understand that they need to learn to manage these strong feelings. And what I mean about managing them is to be able to sit with these feelings. Just because you have strong feelings in the workplace doesn't necessarily mean you're entitled to express them. <laughs> the other problem is, is that if you, know, if you express, you, you, you might be wrong. You're better off 
cont containing, sitting with those feelings and trying to reflect and think about what's actually going on. So managing strong feelings is what I talk to people a lot about, because if you can manage strong feelings, it will make an enormous difference to your performance and your relationships in the workplace. People don't underestimate how crucial that is. And anyone listening can just think about a time, for example, that they were led by their strong feelings in the workplace, and it led to a more of a destructive or negative outcome. You can, everyone has an experience about that. So being able to contain your feelings doesn't mean these feelings don't exist. Does, I'm not suggesting you should repress these feelings, but if you can sit with them, then you can think about them. And if you can think about them, you're less likely to act on them. And that's, I think, what needs to be encouraged. I think this book is essential reading for any leadership development or MBA uh, program. And with that in mind, and building on what you said there, is there's this narrative going about where we bring our full selves to work. And I think the point that you're making there is to say, well, there's boundaries, isn't there? We can't bring every single emotion to work because we still have to do the work. And sometimes the work is actually doing work on yourself and sitting with those feelings and understanding that. And when I was reading this book, I could understand some of my personal triggers. Now that I was aware of the drivers behind my emotions, then I was a lot more at peace. And I, it wasn't as um, emotional for me when those triggers got activated again. I had a different sense to it, a different meaning, and I was a lot more kinder uh, is to myself. Is that, I suppose, some of your experiences when you're working with people? Yes, exactly. I mean, you you put it so well and so clearly. I don't that nobody can say it any better than that. But the point of developing this kind of self awareness, understanding your deeper motivations, the origins of these motivations, where they come from, um, how they might have. Um, helped you perhaps in your family or early life, but when they then create problems in your professional life, that kind of self-awareness is, uh, I, I don't know, uh, calming isn't the word, but it takes the intensity out of the feeling, doesn't it? Yeah. It does take the intensity out. And that's what the understanding does. The understanding and the insight removes the intensity. So you're you're much more able again, to see what's going on. You're much more able to bear difficult situations. You know, I think what people find in the workplace is suddenly they start to realize that actually people aren't so difficult. <laughs> they're more yeah. able to, you know, they're better collaborators because, you know, they don't have these strong feelings. They're, they're not so paranoid or angry. You know, it just, it, it takes the sting out of the situation. And I think with this process, people feel they're much more able to work, to focus on their work. What I loved about this book is building on that, that what you were talking about, those types of behaviours like anger. Sometimes we have uh, an unhealthy view about conflict. And sometimes actually conflict can be very healthy. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about your book is, is you were talking about um, a behaviour that there's a spectrum of behaviour that sometimes it's actually good to be suspicious and sometimes it works against us. And it's actually 
that's what I really liked about this book. It gives me a different understanding about sometimes behaviors that we see negative to say, actually, there's a positive to this. And what we need to understand about ourselves is there's a dark side. Would you, mm. would you agree about that, that maybe we don't have all the emotional literacy that we could have to understand conflict situations at work? That's right. I mean, I, I'm hoping with this book that people will come to understand uh, some of these issues that people, uh, descriptions people bring to the workplace, like, you know, anger, as you mentioned, or paranoia again, or the imposter syndrome, or even narcissism, that all these are kind of traits that lie in a wide, continu- long continuum. So, you know, at some level, some of the same traits that can be quite helpful if one is not conscious and it falls on the extreme the same traits can become more destructive so it's not so black and white really it's, it's much more complex than that and so you bring up a, an example I think your example was um, the suspicion could be a good thing well God, there's so many ways that being suspicious is a good thing especially in business of course you know you you need to have your eye out for competitors no doubt and people, there might be people in the workplace who indeed are trying to undermine you. You, you, you need to know that. Perhaps you're taking credit for your work and you need to set the record straight. So, you know, the opposite side of that coin, not being suspicious, might mean that you're not facing up to situations. You're pretending they don't exist because you don't want to deal with them. You don't want to face them. <laughs> so you can imagine the consequences of that. So you can see we're being highly suspicious might be quite a good trait to have and you know even if we go further along that continuum we talk about people who are extremely paranoid i have to say mainly extremely paranoid people are not good for business but sometimes of course they you find that they nonetheless they find themselves in leadership positions because they're so distrustful of people that they tend to build very tight networks around them (laughs) and and that can be a helpful thing too so yes that's right you know in all these traits there's a some positive things and negative things that i'm I'm not really uh encouraging people to, to suggest i don't want people to suggest that a trait's either good or bad but recognize that we all of us are somewhere along a continuum on on these traits and I, I do like that aspect that it's a continuum, you know, so the opposite to suspicion could be, for example, naive uh, there and who wants to be gullible or, or, or naive, you know, and there's, there's negative uh, associations with that. And something that you mentioned earlier on that really uh, struck me is, is sometimes our caregivers or primary caregivers like parents or you know, family or your siblings, we don't realize you mentioned the word harm. You know, sometimes when I associate harm, I associate with physical harm, but sometimes it could be the way they speak to us, the way they berated us, the way they uh, chastised us. You know, that can have um, an impact uh, on our our future careers or our relationships at work. Would you agree? You know, and Mm, or how we receive feedback, for example. Sure. Sure. I I think that's an important point because I use the word harm. And of course, when I use the word harm, I 
you don't mean in that. Sometimes it could could imply physical harm or violence, yeah. but also it can be emotional or psychological harm. And this same, and you know, some sometimes that that harm, you know, can come from a very early period in life. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book are those very early experiences a baby or a toddler has with his first caregiver or primary caregiver is absolutely crucial. You know, if that baby or toddler at that time of life feels quite safe and secure, that that caregiver is responsive to their needs more than not, then that that person later will carry that into their personal lives and professional lives. So it leaves a kind of an imprint in one's mind. It leaves an imprint, by the way, in a baby's brain and nervous system. So this has biological implications as well, not just psychological ones. So, you know, there are people, for example, that maybe uh, I have a client, for example, whose mother returned to work three months, two months after he was born if we look back at the history and he was left with a series of nannies and so he carries some of this anxiety of rejection with him um and he brings that into the workplace you know a, a real real fierce fear of rejection which is really undermined him professionally um so when we kind of unpick the origins of that we can go back to his infancy and see where that might have originated so some of these things go so some of these themes can originate as early as that. And, and this is where people might have weak boundaries around work, where they're people pleasers, or they might be workaholics. Uh, and it's really about understanding, okay, where might this come from? You know, and is that a lot of what you do as part of your work is really trying to understand why am I a people pleaser? Why do I have... Why do I want to be a, a workaholic? I know there are two separate things. We might go with the workaholic first. Why might I be, if I'm listening in, how would I recognize if I'm a workaholic? Like, where is this coming from? So I can get the ball rolling. Well, that's just the question to ask. Thank you. The yeah. question is, where does this come from? Why am I working like a crazy person? Why am I putting my, uh, not only my family life at risk, my health at risk, but even my business at risk, because oftentimes, as you probably know, you know, the, mm. the, these people, there's also some consequence to business. Yeah, certainly can be. And I'm sure you've seen that. So the question always to ask and the questions my clients come to me with is, is that they know that they're behaving, that their behavior is undermining uh, their career, their work, their business, but they can't stop. Yeah. And that's a question to ask. You know, if I know somebody and yes, of course, I see a lot of people, somebody just working, you know, 200 percent. So sometimes I suggest, well, what would happen if you work 190 percent? That's just kind yeah. of 10 percent. But of course, even that prospect can be terrifying. So once they start to recognize that they're how they're working is not only irrational, but also is um, harming them or undermining their work then the question to ask is, why would you do that? And oftentimes the roots are, we can, we can locate those uh, root, roots and um, those origins in one's early life. So often, let's take workaholism, because you asked about workaholism. 
oftentimes I see with workaholics, by the way, there's an idea that workaholics come from, you know, highly um, uh, families where workaholism or achievement is a theme, but not necessarily. And certainly yeah. that's not what I see. It's probably not what you see, but rather workaholics somewhere in their lives, and it's usually early in their lives, they discover that achieving has solved some psychological problem for them. Now, that psychological problem might be that it brought them closer to their parents or some admiration from their parents, really love, possibly, um, or that it protected them from perhaps bullying behavior. I've, I've seen that as well. Um, so, one has to understand what the origins are, but usually it's because early on in life, one has discovered that winning solves psychological problems. Then they're intent on winning at everything and being the best at everything. Really, it's, it's to um, protect them from feeling bad, sometimes protect them from feeling humiliated, from feeling rejected and want unloved. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a defense, if you can see it in those terms. Once they find that if they apply themselves and work hard enough, they can always win, and then they can always distance themselves from uncomfortable feelings, they don't stop. Then when they bring those same traits into the workplace, and then they start to be financially successful, and then they start to gain the admiration from people around them, well, that only adds to it. Then they're quite terrified of the prospect of, of, of not achieving, of not winning. And of course, what they imagine is they might have to feel, you know, all of, all of these repressed feelings quite strongly. So they feel they can't stop. And, and then it becomes uh, compulsive. It, it, it just, it's just becomes something that solves every problem. So when you have a trait that not only helps people succeed professionally, but when that same trait also protects them psychologically, if you can understand, yeah. it also defends them from hard feelings and also means that they gain the admiration from other people, which sometimes they wrongly misinterpret as love then the reasons start to build up why it's so difficult to shift. Then you can understand that it's not so simple as let's talk about working less. I, I, I recall, you know, doing a coaching session where uh, this person um, was really stressed about work and they wanted an answer right there, right then within the hour. And I, I, I was like, you know, there was burnout there, workaholism, uh, per, you know, perfectionism. And and I think this is where reflection is really important. And I know listeners are are, are tuning in, picking up, oh, maybe I did this, or maybe did, uh, I'm doing that. I think there's a, a myriad of reasons, and maybe there's loads of ones that stack up uh, on top of each other, is understanding what are the needs that need to be uh, addressed that weren't maybe, um, I, I suppose, provided for in our childhood. And, you know, with that, I love what you're saying there about some behaviors or self-defense mechanisms or a form of self-protection. Uh, isn't that right? Um, and the way they're working probably worked for them for a while, but it's not working for them anymore with added responsibilities of leadership or family or whatever it might be. Um, and with that in mind, say, for example, you know, if my manager is a uh, micromanager, you know, like what's a better way for me to look at that in a different light? 
uh, my manager? How would I best understand what's going on for my manager? Well, there's lots of ways to understand that, of course. So there's not one explanation. But let me perhaps suggest a common one. Yeah. That oftentimes, micromanagers are people, we can also say that oftentimes they they're, uh, have controlling natures. Mm. You know, they're micromanaging um, because they can't let go. They, they're re- recently promoted leaders or managers. Yeah. And so, you know, their anxiety is that their staff won't be up for the job. Somehow it will reflect badly on them. And so they have to intervene. So oftentimes they're controlling. So what I suggest is people understand about a micromanaging manager. It could be a few things. One is that he's new at the job. So he's anxious. Okay. So it's only a problem if he doesn't get over it. Yeah. <laughs> Three, four, five, six months and the micromanaging is carrying on. And then it's, it's becoming more problematic. Then perhaps you're dealing with somebody who's controlling. Uh, quite obsessively controlling. If that's the case, if it's not too extreme, it's likely because there's something he or she is anxious about. Now, if you can find out what your manager is anxious about, just having direct conversations, what are you worried about? What do you think is not going to happen? And if you can show them somehow that you can, that you're, you can help them, with what they're worried about basically what you're doing then is you're relieving their anxiety so there's less of a need to be controlling have to understand that control is also a way of managing one's anxiety so the less anxious the less control so you can find out what they're anxious about it might be that they might be less controlling so i think a manager who is again we're talking about the continuum so i'm not talking about controlling bosses on the extreme of the continuum, but somewhere on the more moderate end. Yeah. And, and these are survival tendencies that we have when we go into these form of, of micromanaging, we're, we're trying to control something. We're trying to make sure that we survive, whether it's a career or a role, or we're trying to protect our reputation, that it's a poor reflection on us. And where did that derive from? It could have been that they were berated as a child for not being good enough for something like that. And these, I suppose, internal critics or those inner critics or gremlins stay with us. Um, So I do a lot of leadership development programs and this is what comes up is, you know, whatever has gone on in my past, whether it be my first job or something that happened at school starts playing out uh, at work. And, I, I was speaking beforehand um, about the book and uh, as a parent, I, I'm sometimes hyper vigilant about my own behavior because I teach so many things that I sometimes I'm setting myself up for failure or set my sons up for failure to be this perfect parent or uh, to be the ideal boss. And I think there's a bit of reality check that needs to come in here is that what was really reassuring as a parent is, is that as long as I am somewhere in the middle of a continuum and I have a bit of balance that if I'm not perfect all the time, because if I'm not perfect all the time, um, that actually I'm doing my son, sons a favor because if they go into the real world and they go into the workplace and they meet someone that isn't 
William Cordes that doesn't have spent years of doing self-development work and helping others to do so. I'm setting them up for failure, haven't I? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the other thing to say, I can also let you off the hook um, from wanting to be a perfect parent by saying that perfect parents don't exist. Mm. So uh, I, I think, and, you know, as psychotherapists, we have a very good phrase. You know, what we say to parents is you only need to be good enough. In other words, for children to thrive, parents also all, only need to be good enough. And that means to provide a kind of a safe and secure environment, you know, for a child to thrive. Uh, but that does not imply being perfect. Good enough is good enough. And I often wish that people in the workplace, particularly leaders, can take that phrase on board for themselves. You know, what would it mean to be a good enough leader? To take the pressure off of having to be a perfect leader or perfect manager. But but just be good enough. Just be human. And I think the expectations on leaders, I think we're being held, are being held to a higher standard now. And sometimes when we talk about expectations, are they idealistic? Are they realistic? And this is why I was asking about how much of our true selves do we bring to work? Uh, and I think there's a, a little bit about, there's a bit of balance. I think we need to hold back something but we still need to show enough that we're authentic. What are your what are your thoughts on that? So as, as a leader, you know, if I display all of my insecurities and all my what's happened in my life and my childhood, that could have a, a negative as, as well, could it? Well, it can. Uh, you know, I think when the, a, a good question a leader needs to ask oneself is why am I... Um, why am I exposing these sides of myself? Mm. It, it, it needs to be for the good of the team or for the good of the company or for the good of the organization, not for oneself. In a leadership position, it is about everyone else. And sometimes that's a hard thing for, for leaders to comprehend and to grasp, but it really isn't about you. It really is about everybody else. So, you know, the reason to express one's vulnerabilities, to ask for help from time to time, to show that one doesn't have all the answers is simply to show people that they're more human and also to create a, a culture where people can be more real and, and also recognize that everyone has their limits and uh, not everyone can know it all. So there, the question I think leaders need to ask themselves is, why am I expressing, is this for me or it shouldn't, it should be for the team and for the company. Because I think there is a danger is is that they're doing it to play the victim. Yeah. So they're they're actually trying to deflect in a certain way a challenge that should be taken up. Is that right? So again, it's it's what's your purpose and what's your intention, and are you doing it from an objective point of view, or are you doing it from an emotional point of view, which is a form of self defense. Um, wonderful conversation here. Really, thanks so much, and um. I've often spoken in, in, in the podcast um, uh, about my own uh, experiences and I really like your frame on post-traumatic growth. Um, for me, I post-traumatic stress and I reframe that as, as a gift now that uh, it's a bit like I was, was talking about my own experience of the past couple of weeks and the difficulties. I now see that as a gift 
um, and a lot more calm, calm of that and uh, a peace with that. And can I can I ask you what are your 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 thoughts on people who've gone through a hard time like the pandemic? You know, what what are the what are the insights you can share with them about post traumatic growth? Well, you know, what we know about post-traumatic growth that, you know, these experiences always offer us an opportunity to grow and to strengthen ourselves. You know, we become resilient, not because we made a decision to be resilient, but because we know that we've survived a particular experience. And to have that knowledge and that experience is what makes us not just resilient, but more importantly, it also makes us more compassionate, more empathetic to other people. You know, we can't really know entirely other people's experiences, but if we've gone through traumatic events ourselves, difficult periods, at least we can have some empathy and compassion for other people. We can't understand exactly where they come from, but perhaps we can come close. So there is an enormous amount to learn. And I I think when people go through Uh, I don't know if people recover entirely from trauma, but they certainly learn to live alongside the trauma and develop parts of themselves that can also thrive alongside the trauma. And having that experience, I think, really can kind of help help people's uh, confidence, say, I I can cope with this, I'm okay. Yeah, and I think that's, that's great to hear, especially when we need to be resilient in, in times like that, especially with the, the pandemic. And if I may to ask about people pleasing then, because this is something I have suffered from in the past and lots of people ask me about this. You know, what are the factors around that? How do I know I've fallen into those pitfalls of people pleasing? and How, how might this be impacting me in the workplace? Well, you, you'll know you're uh, people-pleasing if you find yourself unsure of your own opinions, that you really don't know what you think about things, that, mm. you know, that you look for other people, towards other people, uh, to offer opinions, to make decisions for you, because you're, you're just not sure what you think about things, and it's just harder and harder to make a decision. And you find that other people are getting ahead, but, but not you, somehow. So you're, you're always, your antennae, if you like, is directed more towards other people than yourself. In other words, you're less in tune with your own needs than you are with other people's needs because you're quite busy placating them, trying to please them. So you start to lose sight of your own needs. And in that, of course, you lose sight of your own desires and ambitions. So you begin to lose a sense of direction as well. So there's a lot of consequences to people pleasing. It's one of those things where, you know, oftentimes people please, pleasers are like, you know, they're great team players and organizations love them in a lot of ways because there's not a lot of trouble and, and they're busy getting along with everyone. So they're kind of the bread and butter of a lot of organizations. The, the people most at risk from people pleasing are people pleasers themselves. And, and I, I like the frame that you have it on the, in the book, if I read this correctly, that's a form of influence as well, isn't it? It's a form of? Influence. Influence. To be, to be our manipulation, to be a people pleaser. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so on that is, is that they're serving a need to be well-liked or whatever fears they're trying to do. It's serving a purpose for them 
And that's part of the work is to understand what are those needs. Exactly. The work is to find out, understand uh, why, you know, when it becomes extreme. I mean, it's fine to be interested in people and helpful and curious about them and wanting them to do well. Of course, all that all that's good. But to an extreme, you're undermining yourself. And so you have to ask yourself, why would you do that? Why, why would you do that to yourself is a question to ask. And again, oftentimes, you know, the answers lie usually in people's early life experiences. And those are the questions to ask. Somebody might be listening here and have gone, Chippers, are you, blaming, are you blaming the parents? Do I have to go back to my childhood experiences? You know, is, is there not a fast shortcut around this? Can we, can we not just get on with it? If somebody was listening in and they were saying that, what, what would you say to them? Well, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I say to people is that, you know, you don't need to dig deeply or go back, only if it's a problem. If you can solve your problem superficially, if you can pick up a self-help book and give you instructions on how to uh, find your direct, how to assert yourself, how to assert your needs, you know, how to communicate more effectively. And if that book or that coach is helpful enough, then, of, of course, perhaps there is no need at all to reflect back and to dig more deeply. You know, I only suggest it when people have the right advice and very good advice, but they're not able to take it. And they're, and it makes them unhappy. So ultimately, if they're unhappy and they're not developing, their business isn't growing, then why wouldn't you want to dig more deeply and find out why? So that would be my response. I love that response. And speaking of good books and good coaches, Naomi Shraggy, the man who mistook his job for his life, how to thrive at work by leaving your emotional baggage behind. And I have to say, I, I, I put a quote up on uh, LinkedIn and the quote was, um, the workplace perhaps made you to long hours, insecurities of modern work, even replaced family life as an arena where individuals act out unresolved or the conflicts with siblings, parents and authority figures. And your book is so insightful. Um, I, I cannot recommend it uh, enough. Naomi, I'd like to give you the opportunity now for our listeners, if they were to get in touch with you or find more about this fabulous book, how might they do so? Well, of course, if they're interested in the book, the book's available in most bookshops and also on um, Amazon.com UK, uh, wherever one is in the world, they should be able to um, find a copy on Amazon. Uh, if they want to read more of my work, they can find my uh, articles, which there are many uh, articles, podcasts, programs, radio programs on my website, uh, naomishragai.com. Uh, uh, and also, if one is a subscriber to the Financial Times, they can find all my articles on ft.com. Naomi Shragai, and I said it right this time around. Apologies for that. Thank you so much for joining us on the Workplace Podcast today. I'm sure our listeners took a lot of value from that. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're most welcome. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with the podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, 
contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your externing learning and development partner, provider executive coaching, facilitation, and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team, and organization.